Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. In November, President Biden signed into law the signature legislation of his presidency to date, the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill, also known as the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The legislation includes more than $100 billion in funding for clean energy technology, infrastructure, and climate preparedness, making it the most significant federal commitment to clean energy and climate to date. On today's podcast, we're going to explore where and how the energy-focused dollars in the infrastructure law are likely to be spent. My guest is Leah Rubin-Shen, a policy director with Advanced Energy Economy, which is a national business association that advocates for clean energy and transportation on behalf of many of the U.S.'s largest technology and clean energy companies. Leah will discuss the direction and limitations of infrastructure law funding and the state and federal spending priorities that AEE is advocating for. Leah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. To get us started, I wonder if you could tell us about AEE's mission and who the organization serves. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, we are a multi-technology trade organization that advocates for the full breadth of the clean energy industry. So we have uh, over 100 member companies that run the gamut from large-scale wind and solar developers, residential and small commercial solar, electric vehicle manufacturers, charging infrastructure providers, energy storage and energy efficiency providers. We have some companies that are providers of software that manage energy usage as well as data about that usage. And we have a group of large energy consumers that have ambitious sustainability goals. So colloquially, we, we like to say that we want to grow the pie for the clean energy industry and open markets for the sort of the full range of technologies that our, our members provide. And our formal mission is 100% clean energy and electrified transportation in the United States. So we're, of course, designed to serve our members who are interested in those, those market opportunities and growth of those opportunities, but also anyone who shares that broader mission. So the bipartisan infrastructure bill is a law now, is, is the largest such law that has been passed in this country federally to date. Tell us a little bit about your advocacy efforts at the state and federal level around the law. Sure. So we were very supportive of the bill as it was being developed. And of course, when it passed, we did advocate at the federal level with members of Congress in support of it. Um, we also worked with our teams that advocate in states to interact specifically with the federal delegations from those states to sort of make the case for why the funding could help accelerate goals that the states already had. And of course, now our aim is to ensure that the funding is being implemented well in those states. So there are a bunch of different kind of funding vehicles or, or, or earmarks here. We've got $2.5 billion revolving loan fund for new transmission $21.5 billion to establish an Office of Clean Energy Demonstration, billions of dollars for carbon capture and storage, for hydrogen energy, direct air capture, et cetera, all over the place. Could you, uh, you know, do us the favor here of maybe boiling that down to the major focus or focuses of the, of the law? What's it going at? Yeah. So when we think about the, the funding in this law, we divide it into four main buckets that we're paying attention to and tracking. So the first is electrifying transportation. That includes charging infrastructure, as well as electric school buses and electric transit buses. The second is energy efficiency. There's a, a handful of programs in there, mostly funding that's flowing directly to states to save energy in public buildings, uh, including public school buildings, nonprofits, and to do some workforce development as well. 
There's a bucket of funding that really focuses on the electricity grid and sort of the infrastructure related to that. So there's some funding for new generation. You mentioned the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations. That's a big part of that. The funding for transmission, as well as funding that's specifically for grid resilience and grid modernization. And then the fourth bucket that, that we're paying close attention to is on advanced energy manufacturing. So there's some, some funding that's specifically for battery manufacturing and recycling, as well as um, funding that is designed to invest in manufacturing in um, communities that are transitioning away from coal and to help manufacturing facilities uh, of all kinds save energy. Tell me a little bit more about that. Why the focus on the manufacturing aspect? Yeah, that's a new area of focus for AEE. Um, it's coming from a couple of different places. I would say one is just a recognition that, um, you know, it's great that we're deploying all of these technologies here in the United States, and that's certainly something we're very supportive of. But to really advance our, our goals and to ensure that, that, you know, we're continuing to maintain energy security as we transition, we want to be making more of those technologies here as well. Well, also, what comes to mind is this whole issue about the permanence and the quality of clean energy jobs. Uh, we had a discussion recently on this podcast about manufacturing being a critical enabler of kind of longer term, well-paying jobs. Is that right? Yes. And that that is really kind of the other reason that that's a big focus for us is because of that jobs angle and because, you know, the the rebuilding of manu American manufacturing is, is a way to, um, as you say, you know, bring back quality jobs that are that are long term. Now, so this was a bipartisan legislation, bipartisan bill. Is there anything that surprised you about the final bill? Anything that you would not have expected to get in there that did or something that you're really aiming for generally that was left out? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I do think that overall the, the bill is not particularly surprising. It sort of focuses on a lot of you know, areas of need in terms of our infrastructure investments that traditionally do get bipartisan support, transportation, broadband, drinking water. Um, and even if you look at a lot of the energy and climate pieces, a lot of those are, are the things that tend to get more bipartisan support, such as energy efficiency. I think we were very pleasantly surprised to see um, the investments in electric vehicles and electrified transportation. Um, you know, that's certainly something that, you know, as we do our advocacy in the States, we do see there being a lot of interest in both sides of the aisle in. Um, but still, you know, sort of pleasantly surprised to see um, that investment at the federal level. And then the other thing is the, you know, the the amount of investment, I think, in climate resilience, um, I guess, again, not particularly surprising, but um, still a very important component of, of the investments that we do need to be making. Now, some of that funding has to be earmarked by the six-month mark, which is actually just passed. Uh, we're in the end of May here. How discretionary is the funding uh, at this point? And how much room is there for AEE to advocate at this point for the, the funding to be spent in ways that you think is, is most advantageous, number one, and two, to really kind of watch where that money goes in real time? Yeah. So the six-month mark really, really marked kind of a milestone for a lot of the federal agencies in you know, setting up these programs. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have regulations fully written. It doesn't necessarily mean that money, money is flowing out the door. So I think right now, actually, we're in a period of time where there is a lot of opportunity to influence those federal agencies, you know, they've got requests for information coming out. They've got, you know, various sort of comment deadlines and solicitations, but they're really, they're looking for input right now on how a lot of these programs are going to be structured. And then once the money does flow to states and not all of it goes to states, but a, but a good chunk of it does, 
I think they're still going to have a fair amount of discretion with with how they spend the money. They, of course, are accountable to the federal government for how they spend it and what they do with it. There are statutory requirements in the bill, and then there will be regulatory requirements from the agencies. But my understanding is that there's there's a pretty good recognition that you know each state is different. Each state is going to have different approaches to achieving the goals of a given program, and so that there will be some flexibility in, in what they choose to do with it. There are also recipients of the funding that are non-governmental, um, utilities, for example, who are going to have those investments overseen by the public utility commissions in their states. And some of the funding, of course, also goes straight to private sector actors who will you know, be able to apply for the funding. It's competitive. They'll make their best case, and then um, they'll see. I believe the funding is primarily in the form of grants. Is that right? A lot of it is grants. Um, there are a couple of, of um, loan programs. There is, this is actually one of my favorite um, parts of the bill, uh, the Energy Effici- Efficiency Revolving Loan Capitalization Grant Program, which is grants to states, but it's to set up and capitalize revolving loan programs that the states can then use to conduct energy efficiency audits and, and otherwise make investments in energy efficiency. There's also a couple of new authorities for the DOE loan program as well as the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program. Those are both um, loan programs. They're not new, but they're, they're sort of given some new, new authorities and new guidance in the bill. But yes, most of the rest of the funding is, is grant funding, either formula grants to states and tribal governments or competitive grants. Just for a little bit of historical context here. So we, the last time we saw uh, funding on this level was in 2009 with the rescue package, the economic rescue package under the Obama administration. How is the funding structured similarly or differently today from what we saw at that point? I think a lot of it's fairly similar. Um, you know, most of the grant funding has a similar matching requirement, anywhere from 20 to 50 percent. One big difference is that, of course, this is a bigger investment than ARA. Um, it's just more money overall, and it's more money for energy and climate specifically. And I think the other the, the other big thing that is is really quite different and that I think um, in general people are excited to see is different is there's less emphasis on the projects being shovel ready. So that this is being viewed more as a long-term investment in our infrastructure, less as an immediate economic stimulus opportunity. Um, and I think there's a sense for most of the people I talk to that everyone kind of, you know, wants to learn the lessons from ARA and not require states to, you know, spend the money really quickly um, and potentially, you know, spending, spend it less thoughtfully. Um, but really to think about how they're going to structure these investments over the five-year you know, funding cycle of, of the bill um, and be thoughtful about how they do that. So earlier you stated that the funding kind of falls into four uh, broad buckets. Are there specific programs that AEE is most interested in, in in really watching at this point? Yeah, that's a great question. The first thing is, you know, we're, we're advo- we advocate at the state level in about a dozen states around the country. And so, you know, of course, our priorities in each state do look a little bit different. And the priorities, you know, of the government in that state, of course, are also different. Um, but there are some key themes that I think we're we're seeing as being of interest um, both to us and to those states across the board. The first is EV infrastructure. Um, you know, this bill makes dedicated formula funding available to every state to install more EV charging infrastructure. Um, that's a pretty big deal, and it's it's inspiring a lot of states who maybe haven't thought too hard about this to think more about it. So that's something that we're definitely very engaged in and, and watching closely and engaging with states on. Um, a second thing that we're really interested in is school buses, electrifying school buses. Um, you know, a, a lot of states are, you know, sort of ha- have already placed some priority on this and are, are prioritizing even more. We saw both Colorado and New York, for example, this year pass pretty significant investments as part of their state budgets in electric school buses. Um, and, and I know both those states and I'm sure other states are hoping that, that those investments will be complemented by additional federal investment. 
A third piece that we're tracking really closely is around grid resiliency. Um, I mentioned there's a there's a couple of programs um, that DOE is going to oversee that will help states um, and other you know entities in those states um, who who are involved with the grid invest in the grid and to make it more resilient and reliable. Um, one thing in particular that we're interested in as part of those programs is the what's the role that microgrids are going to play and what's the role of what we call distributed energy resources. So things like um, programs that can you know help control when you're using energy, not just how much you're using it, but when you're using it. Things like rooftop solar, things like electric vehicles even um, can be can be grid assets. Um, and you know, and we we advocate really strongly that all of those things need to be playing a role on the grid just as much as sort of the big you know generation projects and transmission do. There's a lot of money here, but when it's spread out over all the different energy focused programs, you know, from EV infrastructure to grid development. The funding starts to look thin. How impactful is the funding going to be? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, I think it's something that, you know, um, we're really pushing states to, to think about carefully that, you know, don't don't try to do everything, you know, focus on a couple of, of key priorities. Um, and you mentioned EV charging infrastructure as an example. So the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program, the NEVI program, which is the one that makes that that dedicated formula funding available, is part of what is available for EV charging infrastructure. There are also a lot of other programs that have the option of being used for EV charging infrastructure as well. So, you know, a state may have other priorities they want to use some of that other money for. There's a new a new program that's sort of part of the highway funding overall that's called the Carbon Reduction Program, which is about reducing transportation-related emissions. You know, states may not choose to spend that on EV charging infrastructure, but they can if that's a really high priority for them and they really want to, you know, fully build out their EV charging network. That's that's additional funding available that they can use to do that. Um, and I think you you see examples of that in you know a kind of a couple of different categories. You know that there's there's funding that, you know, sort of has somewhat more flexible use and, you know, they don't, a state could choose to sort of be scattershot with it and kind of just invest a lot in the little things. But if they're thoughtful about it, they can also choose to pull some of those resources together. And again, with, you know, additional funding that might already be, be available at the state level to, you know, kind of advance something a little bit more substantially than they would be able to otherwise. So states have to be prepared to receive and utilize the money that we're talking about here. To what extent have politics influenced Politics around clean energy and climate in particular influenced state preparedness to receive funds and, and do the best they can with it. Yeah. So I, I do know that one thing we were concerned about kind of at the start of this process was, you know, how much is politics going to impact whether or not a state even wants to accept the money? Um, and I will say that we've been we've been um, pleased to see that that's not a particularly big factor. You know, states across the board, at least the ones that we work in, do want to, to accept the money and use it. Um, and, and they're taking it seriously and they're, they're, you know, in some cases they're appointing infrastructure coordinators and they're, they're kind of, you know, taking steps that show that they're, they're being thoughtful about this. Um, politics does, you know, still play a role in a couple of ways though. I think in some cases we see states that have been less forward looking with respect to some of these technologies, um, or just less prepared, um, to spend it. So for example, states that haven't been prioritizing electric vehicles as much, just haven't put in the work to build out a state that they'll need to put in to build out a statewide charging network. Um, you know, they're in, they're all in different places in terms of, you know, surveying where do, where are chargers currently? Like, where do we want to put new chargers? Um, as, as well as engaging with stakeholders in the state about, about that. Um, and then I think the other place that we're really going to see this play out differently, depending on politics is for some of that funding that's more flexible, 
there, there will probably be differences in how states prioritize the funding. So, you know, again, going back to electric vehicles, because it's a sort of easy example. Um, in addition to the, the NEVI formula program, there's funding for alternative fuel corridors. So that funding can be used for electric vehicles. It can also be used for hydrogen or propane or compressed natural gas. So kind of anything that's considered an alternative fuel. You know, I think we'll see some states say, we, would just, we just want to use all of it for electric vehicles. We're just going to really lean into electric vehicles. Some are probably all, you know, going to choose to invest in some of those other fuels. Um, and I think we, we, will, we will see politics playing a role in, in you know, what, what states choose to do there. Other than that, there are some of the differences between states that aren't necessarily political, um, but where we do really see differentiation. There are states that have different um, grid resiliency needs. A lot of that's about geography or weather, you know, it's different in different parts of the country. Um, and we also see, you know, different utilities, you know, around the country having different goals for clean electricity or electric vehicles or energy efficiency that are sometimes but not always related to the politics of the states where they operate. So I don't want to elide the role that politics plays in some of these additional things, but it's, it's sort of not just politics. There's other factors at play as well. You know, I was kind of surprised at how quickly some of these uh, decisions have to be made. For example, the Department of Transportation has six months to decide on the corridors, if I understand it correctly, that would be prioritized in the EV charging build out. So that's that's all happening very quickly. It is happening very quickly. Um, one thing that's helpful there, and I think one of the reasons we see DOT rolling out some of their funding um, particularly fast relative to some of the other buckets of money, um, is those corridors are actually not new. They, that's that's a program that's that's already existed, the, these alternative fuel corridors. So states have designated these corridors already. They have the opportunity to update them. Um, I believe they they had to submit sort of the updated versions of those this um, earlier this month. But um, you know, they they those they at least had 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 to give that some thought um, prior to prior to this this bill passing. To what extent is there governance around how this money is spent? And I'll give you a prime example. I was reading earlier in the in the newspaper today, or the digital newspaper, whatever we call it these days, about Texas had a certain amount of money, uh, grants uh, from this program for EV charging infrastructure. And literally, once it opened up the window for companies to request those grants, all the money was gone within a minute. The bulk of that money went to Shell, the oil company, which is getting into EV charging infrastructure, and some other company. And there was some question about whether, you know, again, all the, was this based upon need? Was this based upon best use? Or was this based upon people having the resources to go out and grab the funds quickly? Yeah, no, that's a good question. You know, and I think to, you know, if your question is like, to what extent are the are the feds going to kind of come in and, and oversee that and, um, you know, slap Texas on the wrist or, or yeah, that's do whatever. That's kind of my question. <laughs> yep, yep. That's a, that is a good question. I don't know that I really have a good answer to that. Um, you know, I think my general sense from the federal government is they they want to see funding get spent. They want to see projects, you know, um, built. They want to see, you know, new technologies deployed. Are they going to, you know, kind of come in and say you didn't conduct a fair process? I mean, I'm sure, I, I'm sure they've said you should conduct a fair process, but, you know, to what extent is there going to be um, kind of oversight of that after the fact? I just don't know. Um, you know, I know that there were a lot of requirements, uh, a lot of reporting requirements after the fact with um, the Recovery Act. You know, I don't know to what extent any of those reporting requirements resulted in any consequences for states. To what extent is AEE advocating for equity? And equity has been such a focus. So, the, uh, you know, there's $10 million in energy efficiency career skills training money in this program. There's a prevailing wage requirements What's in there? And are you all involved in, again, advocating for any of this? 
Yeah. So equity is a really important focus for um, you know the Biden administration um, in terms of how this funding is being spent. Um, this is also an issue that we see being top of mind for a lot of the states where we work. You know, the administration has this initiative called Justice 40, which aims to ensure that 40% of the overall benefits of certain federal investments flow to disadvantaged and marginalized communities. Um, and, and those investments include, you know, climate and um, clean energy programs. The White House has also released a climate and economic justice screening tool to help identify sort of what are these disadvantaged and marginalized communities? Where are they? Um, and then federal agencies are directed to think about this in implementing the individual programs. So certainly I think that's that's something that's um, going to be infused into all of these programs um, as as agencies, you know, sort of roll out guidance and, you know, um, get that guidance out to, to states or to whoever um, is eligible to apply for the funding. I will say AWE is is not an you know we are not an equity group. Um, we're not the right voice for that. We don't want to you know get in the way of of groups for whom that is their key focus. But um, you know because this is such an important issue, you know for the administration again for many of the states in which we work, and then just generally you know it is it is something that we believe is the right thing um, to be to be infusing into our work. We do look to amplify what other groups are saying where we can. Um, so, you know, we're not, we're not at the forefront of saying equity is really important. You know, you should be thinking about it in these ways, but if, you know, there are groups who, who, for whom this is their, their main focus, who are focused on equity and environmental justice, and they're saying those things, we will, um, help to, to uplift that and amplify that where we can. Okay. So let's imagine for a moment, the reconciliation bill becomes a reality. What would it accomplish if the bipartisan package has not, or is not focused on in what way would they, I guess, more importantly, in what way would they be complementary? Yeah, so we've always viewed, uh, and you know, we're not alone in this. Many have always viewed the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and you know, the policies proposed in in what used to be called Build Back Better. Now, folks are just kind of calling budget reconciliation until we get a new bill bill title as two pieces of the same overarching plan. Um, you know, and I think the way I the way I think about it is that EJIT invests a lot of public money in clean energy. But a big piece that's missing is um, tax incentives, which is a piece that's going to pull in a lot of private investment. And so that, I think, is where re reconciliation can come in and be very complementary um, to what's already in, in EJA. Um, for example, you know, those tax incentives that will make it um, cheaper to build solar and wind projects, those are already the cheapest new generation to build, those kinds of clean resources. Um, and you know, with, with tax credits, we'll only make those resources cheaper. Um, I also think reconciliation is going to help add on to what the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act is already doing to help facilitate more transmission getting built. There's a new um, investment tax credit that's that's kind of part of the, the soup that's being stirred, if you will, um, for transmission in reconciliation, as well as uh, potentially more money that DOE can use to um, make both grants and loans to facilitate transmission. Um, you know, and as we further electrify our transportation and our buildings, we're going to need both more clean generation and more transmission to meet that demand. Um, another big thing that I think is really important in, in reconciliation and, and that would sort of complement the resources that are already provided under EJA is incentives for more domestic manufacturing of clean energy technologies. You know, we talked a little bit about the importance of that and why that's a focus. Um, so, you know, if we've got incentives that will boost demand for wind and solar projects, for example, um, we should also be focusing on production-based incentives for the technologies that will help build those projects um, and, you know, kind of creating both the supply side support um, for both things that will lower the price per widget as well as um, things that can invest in new manufacturing facilities. 
Yeah. So on the equity component of this, one more point is there is, uh, I believe, $3.5 billion for weatherization, uh, home weatherization uh, for low-income communities. I think it's targeted in there. Uh, is that right? Yeah. So that's $3.5 billion for the weatherization assistance program, which is um, an existing program. It's been around for a while. Um, but this is certainly a significant increase um, over what that program would normally get annually. And that's funding that that goes to every state. There's a formula that kind of, you know, dictates how much each state gets based on population and, and also the weather in that specific state. And it's specifically for weatherizing, um, you know, ho homes for folks who are low income. So, you know, making their homes more energy efficient, you know, helping helping them save save money on their energy costs, as well as just staying more comfortable. One of the things I'm particularly excited in about this program um, and, and some of the guidance that's come out of DOE more recently um, is, you know, not only just, you know, this, this program is obviously very important from an equity perspective generally, um, and, and that's, it's great to see it get so much, um, so much funding. There's also some new guidance out of DOE that would allow the funding to be used not only for energy efficiency, but also for home electrification, which is something that, um, I think we're seeing is being increasingly important as, you know, more and more states are talking about how do we electrify buildings? How do we get off, you know, the gas distribution system? What's that going to look like? And what's the impact going to be on our sort of most vulnerable constituents and communities? So you just mentioned uh, home electrification, and obviously uh, it's going to require a lot of electricity and electricity and clean energy is, you know, obviously a, a goal of this whole, whole package. One of the components that needs to be dealt with here is obviously transmission. What's in here to um, promote transmission is, you know, I guess primarily the, the kind of regional transmission that would really be necessary to make renewables, you know, work at scale. Yeah. So there's a couple of different things for transmission in the bill. Um, you know, the first is that there's, there's a section of the Federal Power Act that allows DOE to designate national interest electric transmission corridors. I think it's generally pretty well agreed that... Um, that authority that DOE has right now has not worked very well, and so the bill makes some, you know, amendments and updates to that 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 will hopefully, um, you know, kind of streamline that authority and make it a little bit more effective. Um, the second part, and this is this is the part that a lot of folks are talking about, is um, a 2.5 billion revolving loan fund um, that will allow DOE to, um, you know, make make loans or or grants. Actually, I think they they have that authority as well um, in in new transmission, um, as well as enable them to be you know, what folks refer to as an anchor tenant to sort of be the first customer on a transmission line as a way to, to de-risk the upfront investment. And then the third piece in this related to transmission is um, as part of the state energy program, which is a program that that gives some pretty sort of broad, flexible funding to states to, to you know, deal with energy efficiency, energy security in their states is the plan that states have to produce every year as a result of getting this money. They now have to include transmission and distribution planning in that plan. Um, so it's going to get them all thinking about it um, a little more carefully and, and planning for it. Okay. A couple other interesting bits of this legislation. One is the uh, $8 billion for hydrogen energy hubs. I think there are going to be four hubs that are going to be around the country, wondering how that's going to work. And also interesting, uh, you know, uh, associated with that is a billion dollars to lower the cost of electrolyzers. And those are used to create uh, green hydrogen. Want to get your thoughts on that? Yeah. So the $8 billion for hydrogen is, has been, um, watching the states react to that has been very interesting. We've seen a lot of states, you know, kind of propose bills related to hydrogen um, this past legislative session. Um, you know, and I think the motivation for that pretty much across the board has been how can we position ourselves to be, you know, the location for one of these hubs? Like, how do we make ourselves look more competitive? 
We've also seen states entering into um, MOUs with respect to hydrogen. There's four states in the Intermountain West, and I'm, I might screw up the list, but I think it's uh, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, and Wyoming, um, I think, are the four states. Um, and they've sort of, they've entered into this MOU to say, hey, we're going to work together on hydrogen. Um, so there certainly is a lot of interest at the state level in in sort of being, you know, in, engaging in hydrogen and being, being a hydrogen hub or being um, part of a hydrogen hub. Um, the electrolyzer piece of it in particular is interesting because a lot of the hydrogen that's produced now, the vast majority of the hydrogen that's produced now, now um, is produced directly from, from methane using a process called, I think it's steam methane reforming is what it stands for, SMR. Um, it's a very emissions intensive process. It's not particularly, you know, environmentally friendly. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing clean energy about it. And, um, but that's a process that doesn't require electrolyzers. And one of the big things holding green hydrogen back at this point is the fact the cost of those electrolyzers, because you need an electrolyzer to make, to make green hydrogen, to use, um, electricity generated by, by solar or wind or, or some other renewable source of electricity, um, you know, with run that electricity through water and, and generate hydrogen that way, that's green hydrogen. Um, and so if we really want to see hydrogen as a, a part of the clean energy solution and the clean energy economy of the future, it's going to need to be green. Um, we can't continue to make it from methane and, and have it be sort of part of that clean energy future. So if, you know, this funding is really able to lower the cost of an electrolyzer to a point that makes green hydrogen competitive, then that's great. A final question for you. What, in your view, will the legacy of the infrastructure bill be? How much will it have moved the needle toward a cleaner and more resilient energy system? Yeah, so this bill definitely does not get us all the way to 100% clean energy and electrified transportation, which, as I said at the top, is, is our mission and our goal. It does help move us down the path. If Congress were to pass a reconciliation bill, that would take us further. It still would not get us all the way there. And there's still a lot of open questions, of course, about how this money is going to be spent in states and if that's going to be effective. But I do think this is a really great opportunity to get states thinking more about electric vehicles, about what the future of the grid is going to look like, and to start making some of those investments. Um, we saw that under the Recovery Act. There are things, you know, that people point to now as saying that actually did move the needle, you know, not, again, in getting us sort of all the way to 100% clean, but, you know, in, in accelerating, you know, the growth of certain industries or, or in sort of moving us further down, down the path towards certain goals than we would have gotten otherwise. And I think we'll see the same thing with this bill. And, you know, we'll be there advocating for states to spend that money well, and then, you know, advocating for the states themselves to, to take the lead on, on a lot of these issues as well. Leah, thanks very much for talking. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Today's guest has been Leah Rubin-Shen, a policy director with Advanced Energy Economy. Keep up to date with the latest energy research blogs and events from the Kleinman Center by signing up for our monthly newsletter on our website. You can also keep up with us by following us on Twitter. Our hashtag is at Kleinman Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now and have a great day. Thank you.